And now if you're able, uh, please stand with me and we'll be doing uh, the reading this morning. It's actually in two parts. We'll be starting in Genesis 11 and then transitioning over to John 17. And I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Version. And so it begins. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. And now to John 17. And this section is titled, Jesus Prays for All Believers. Uh, starting at verse 20. I pray not only for the, these, but also for those who believe in, in, through, in me through their word. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be, they may be made complete, completely one, that the world may know you have sent me, and have loved them as I have loved you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. And this is a reading of the Lord. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Pastor Jim and team. Church, good morning. It's good to be with you as always on this Lord's Day. Let's go again uh, to the Lord in prayer, just asking you for his help today. Lord, thank you in your grace and kindness you would have us gathered here this morning. Lord, we are gathered as your people. And you've bought with the precious blood of the Son whom you sent so that we could have life and have it abundantly. And I pray, Lord, that as we consider your word that you have left us, that it would prick us, that it would draw us to you, that we would conform into the likeness of Jesus, delighting ourselves in him. Help us, Father, give us ears to hear by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Jesus taught that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Perhaps you'd agree it's not too much of a stretch today to say that we live in such a kingdom. 
We live in the United States of America, but we do not live in a United States of America. There appears to be an America wishing to hold on to a sense of patriotism and another America who sees the nation as inherently flawed. And both perspectives view the other as ignorant, arrogant. Tensions have mounted tremendously, and it's difficult to see what's ahead for the United States. But this morning, our aim is not to get political, but to consider this question. What is unity? What does it mean to be a united people? You know, embedded within each of us, within the human spirit, there's an innate desire for unity, to be a part of a greater, more righteous cause, to be welcomed, affirmed, and loved by like-minded men and women. That's why we have Ford guys and Chevy guys, right? Browns fans and Steelers fans. And wherever there's people, there's culture. There's coffee culture, gamer culture, foodie culture. It's natural for people made in the image of God to pursue unity with others. It makes life more rich and interesting. It's how we're wired. But though we all crave unity, we're not all after the same type of unity. I want to suggest to you this morning that there exist two main types of unity. The first we'll, we'll refer to as worldly unity, and the second, Christian unity. And there are similarities between these, but it's the differences that are most important for us as Christians. So this morning we'll consider some characteristics, some features of both categories, hoping to show the supremacy of unity in the church over unity in the world. So we'll start with worldly unity. Worldly unity is unity around a worldly cause or ideology or a movement. The connotation of that term worldly is that it's of or for the world and therefore not of or for God, and that's the sense we mean. It's unity that is of the world. It's, it's therefore outside of the purposes and design of God. It's temporary, it's, it's carnal, it's of man. And it can take on a lot of different forms, but it's pictured best, I think, at the plain of Shinar here, the area we know as Babel. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn back with me to Genesis 11, or if you have digital Bibles, I won't tell Austin, you can turn there as well. Um, so here we have a people wandering the earth. They come across this vast stretch of nice land, and they decide to unite together to build a beautiful city with a spectacle of a tower reaching into the heavens. And at face value, you kind of ask, well, what's wrong with this? What's the problem here? This city will give them security, comfort. It'll be stunning. It'll provide for their well-being. They've been traveling a long time, so it'd be nice to have a place to call home. John Piper wrote in Desiring God that man can build a hospital in sin. Why? Well, it comes down to motive, to heart. Look at what they say in verse 4. They say, let's build this beautiful city and let us make a name for ourselves. People will look at us. They'll see what we've done. They'll recognize how spectacular we are. This is pride, right? That's the motive. And a better word for pride is self-exaltation because that's what's really happening here. These people are uniting in exalting themselves above God. This is direct and active rebellion against the Lord. And we know that by what they say next. Say, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now these are people, there's some generations after that great flood where man's sin had so incited and grieved the heart of God that he flooded the earth in judgment showing mercy to only eight people. And as the waters receded, God blessed Noah and his family and left them this command for all their descendants. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But they're saying together in one voice, no, 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 we're not gonna do that. Let's not fill the earth. We're tired of this. So why? Why are they rebelling? Because pride submits to no one 
but itself. It rebels against God because it is repulsed by God, and it loves itself. Pride prays like this, my kingdom come, my will be done. Pride whispers, you and you alone are God. There is none like you. Pride is a mindset on the flesh, hostile to God, doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. But here's the rub. What they're planning looks like a good cause. It doesn't look prideful. It looks benevolent. It looks humane. It, it even looks selfless. It's going to make people's lives better and easier. And likewise, there are lots of movements and causes that people unite around that on the surface look really beneficial to humanity. Causes of social justice, equality, charity. But underneath dwells something unholy. The feature of world unity is that it's fueled by pride and therefore rejects truth, divine, absolute truth. And if truth is rejected, it has to be replaced by some other truth. And it is intoxicating to live by your own truth. You are the sovereign. You answer to no one. It's an empowering feeling. And that's the goal behind inventing your own truth. It's to make much of man, much of ourselves, and nothing of God to make him a liar. It sets man up as the ultimate determiner of reality rather than God Almighty. And the Lord, of course, knows where this prideful rejection of truth leads. People move from exalting themselves to worshiping themselves. So instead of letting that happen, God in his kindness and in his grace here intervenes. He confuses their language so they can't understand one another and the project comes to an end. And that's another feature of worldly unity. The prideful rejection of truth eventually leads to confusion. There was a recent article about an athlete in the WNBA who had a baby. You might think, well, how is that newsworthy? A lot of athletes have babies. The difference was this athlete identified as non-binary and transgender. If you're not familiar with those terms, non-binary means that a person does not identify as either male nor female, and transgenderism means one identifies as the opposite gender. So essentially this person identifies as neither male nor female, and male and female. So the preferred pronouns in this article are for this athlete is she, her, he, him, and they, them for a single person. And this was a cover story, an ESPN feature just a couple weeks ago. Oil London, you may have heard, he's a, British, a white British man who fell in love with the Korean culture so much so that he began to identify himself as Korean. He believed he's always been Korean, and so he received 18 reconstructive surgeries, what are called racial reassignment surgeries, to look like his favorite Korean pop singer. My wife uh, showed me a TikTok video. Um, don't judge me, by the way. You could judge her uh, for having to. <laughs> I just happen to see the videos sometimes. Anyway, <laughs> you could judge us both. That's fine. But she showed, uh, she showed me a video of a young girl with about uh, six different colored bracelets on her wrist. And the girl was explaining which color corresponded to which gender or sexual identity she would assume on any given day so that people would not refer to her in the wrong identity. In 2015, a Canadian man, Paul Walsh, 52, left his wife and seven children to live as a six-year-old transgender girl. Not only does the news article paint this man as a hero, but a family adopted him into their family to play with their grandchildren. 
there is unity here. It's unity based around mainstreaming an ideology that believes one's personal identity, one's self-expression is king. It should govern everything. And that people must be affirmed in their self-assigned identities at all costs. Otherwise, you'd be implying that their truth is wrong. You might make them upset. They could harm themselves. You've probably heard the arguments. And I want to be sensitive. I want to pause and be sensitive to these issues. I'm not, I'm not looking judgmentally at people who are wrestling with gender dysphoria, nor do I want you to look judgmentally at them. I know this is a tough issue for many, not making light of it, not talking condescendingly. And we could give a host of other examples of worldly unity, but, but here's the point. When people disregard the truth of God to craft their own truth, they will suffer severe confusion. And confusion does not unify. It cannot. It doesn't matter how many people support a movement or passionately believe it. Confusion irritates people. It leads them to be frustrated. And frustration leads to animosity, and animosity breeds division. And that's another feature and an ultimate irony of worldly unity. It is not actually unifying. It's divisive. People who aren't a part of the cause are seen as lesser, inferior. It, it's always an us versus them mentality. You stay on your side, I'll stay on mine. And people begin to disperse from one another. So what was intended to be a legacy in Shinar ended up in a city forever to be remembered as confusion, as Babel. And so they were dispersed. But the God who dispersed them has a heart for unity. He cherishes it, not in the world, but in his people, in his church. And that leads us to Christ's beautiful prayer in John 17. Jesus' heart is that people would be united as one, just as he is united in the Father. And if you just ponder that for a moment, that's an incredible prayer the Son would pray and eagerly want for his Father. And we believe this prayer has already been answered by the Father. It's a done deal. The church is one as God is one. So how? How do we understand that? How have we been united? Well, first, we're united in truth with a capital T, actual truth, ultimate truth. The truth that says this, God is, or Jesus is God the Son, the promised Savior, the man who not only died but now lives, and his resurrection is what everything hangs on. It's what verifies every one of his claims to be God, come to save sinners. You want to disprove Christianity, you want to tear it all down, you have to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ because his resurrection changes everything. It confirms that the wrath of God against sin has been put away that he has removed our guilt forever, that he has reconciled us and restored us to the Father, so much so that we can be called children of God, not strangers, enemies, but children. And what makes this truth true is not that we zealously believe it or lay our lives down for it. It's that Jesus said it and confirmed it as the truth of God. This is not self-generated. It's not invented. In fact, we couldn't come up with anything as glorious as this. The Apostle Peter said the same thing. He said, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John wrote something similar. Speaking of Jesus, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and we've touched with our hands concerning Jesus, the word of life. And speaking of his resurrection, he says, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it 
and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. Why? So that you may have fellowship with us. You may have unity with us. And indeed, our unity, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We did not come up with this truth. We know this truth because God has united the church with his spirit of truth. And that's a key feature of Christian unity. Paul writes, when you, meaning you, all of you, the church, you all heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you all were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is the one who gives us understanding and clarity and discernment in truth. He's the one that confirms with our spirit, our, our inmost being, that we belong to God as beloved children in Christ. We are so united to him that Christ can say to a man who was persecuting the church, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not them, me. Or when people come to Jesus at the judgment, in Matthew 25, and they ask him, Lord, when did we feed you? When did we clothe you? When did we visit you in prison? And he'll say, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you have done it to me. We have been joined to the Lord to become one with him. And this is a spiritual oneness. It's not a physical oneness. And with that, I just want to make a quick distinction that unity, that, that oneness is not sameness. Being united in Christ doesn't mean that we become gods or demigods or that we all look and talk and think the same way. We don't all robotically repeat the same mantra over and over like Jesus is Lord, hallelujah. You know, we're not robots, right? We have personhood and distinctiveness and uniqueness that we don't lose when we become one in Christ. In fact, the church is made up of every tribe and tongue and nation, the scripture says. It's many, many, many individual parts that belong to one body without any one of us being a deplorable part, an unnecessary, non-essential part. Each has value. We don't show partiality. We don't show favoritism to one part over another. And that's why the church is described in the New Testament as a family, a bride, a pillar of truth, branches on a vine, a body, a building, a temple, a priesthood, a flock, all images of people united under Christ as our sovereign, our brother, our God. Steve prayed about Peter and Mary. Why is it that last week Peter and Mary can come and uh, our beloved Central uh, Asian missionary friends and partners, you know, we don't speak the same language, we don't have the same culture, same experiences, but we could feel like they're family halfway across the earth. Why? Because we are united in Christ. We belong to one body and to one spirit. We are called to one hope in the one Lord with one faith in the one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. For this reason, the church's unity is indestructible. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it because what Jesus prayed for, he received from the Father and he achieved for the Father. The church is one. It's one as God is one. And here's where I'd kind of like to just say amen, pray. Everyone goes to lunch. But, there, but here's where it gets a little tougher. There are two sides to this unity coin. Because we belong to God, we also belong to one another. Jesus' prayer for unity has been fulfilled, but there's a sense that it's being fulfilled. In other words, we are united, but we gotta fight for it. We gotta work to maintain it. 
too. And that day-to-day living this out is where the Christian life becomes hard. You know, there's a reason that there's just literally hundreds of New Testament commands for the church of how we should treat one another because our hearts are all bent toward Babel more than we'd like to admit. We naturally neglect or reject the commands of Christ for the church due to our pride. We build our own cities and towers for people to admire, but also keep them away. We're okay with things that gratify us and tickle our ears, but not with sacrificing for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're too comfortable categorizing and labeling people in the church because we believe ourselves to be better. We're more valuable than others in the church. And so we start to make little comments. You know, he's, he's pro-vaccination. Can you believe that? She's anti-vaccination. Still wearing a mask, are you? Why are you not still wearing a mask? That one drinks. That one doesn't drink. And she's just weird. I mean, something about her is just strange. It's hard to be around her. She's just, meh. That one over there, really bad past addiction. I mean, whoa. Well, this one, she likes to be in the know. You know what I mean? Oh, they, they, don't, they don't like discipline their kids at all. You know, he said something a couple years ago that I still remember. It still bugs me, and I just, it's okay. I, I talk about it with other people, but it's, it's all right. It helps me process it. I can't believe she voted for Biden. She's a Christian. I can't believe he voted for Trump. He's a Christian. There are thousands of other ways we quietly divide ourselves from one another in the church. And this isn't unity. We can't subtly judge one another or entertain those thoughts of our spiritual superiority over brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's the real weight of this. How we treat one another is how we treat the Lord. You cannot say you love one and not the other. That's the scary part. Some want nothing to do with the church, right? Maybe they've been hurt, disappointed, they're bored with it, makes them uncomfortable, they stay home, they watch their favorite preachers, and they still claim to love the Lord. Others love the church. They love being around the church and the friendships they have here, the activities, the programs, but left to themselves in their quiet places, they don't pursue the Lord. They don't commune with Him. And Scripture teaches that neither group really know the Lord. Cyprian, who was the third century bishop of Carthage, said this. He said, no one can have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. You know the scripture in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. That's like the bumper sticker, t-shirt wearing one that you could put. But what about the next verse? If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother or sister. Beloved, though we all struggle a lot with Christian unity, especially on a practical level, that doesn't alter the call. That doesn't alter our opportunity our privilege to be unified in Christ. Since we have each the same spirit of the Lord within us, the only thing keeping us from true unity is ourselves. The scriptures command us to be eager to maintain our unity. So how do you do that? How do you strive to maintain the same unity that Christ died and rose for? 
And I think it begins with our answers to this one simple question. Do you regard other Christians first as your true brothers and sisters in Christ? What if I asked you to write down five descriptors of the person next to you? You don't, have, you don't have to do that, but what would you write down? What would you notice first? What would make the top of your list? What if the first thing you listed was son or daughter of God, and the next one underneath it was brother or sister in Christ? What would that do to the unity of our church if we regarded and treated one another first as those for whom God loves? And thus is our true family in Christ. I think this is a game changer. Because if you begin to see believers this way, you'll naturally want to care for them, to pray for them, to listen to them, to protect them, to encourage them, to love them. It won't be a chore. You know, being petty or holding grudges or withholding forgiveness, that all comes really naturally. And it's miserable. It's deathly. And it robs us the opportunity to see Christ. And that's what, the, what gave the Apostle Paul such joy. Seeing Christ in his fellow brothers and sisters more and more and more and more every day. Have you ever surveyed the way Paul, the Apostle, talks about the church? You know, how is it that this, this man can say to the Philippian Christians something like this, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Or to the Thessalonians, he says, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you'd become very dear to us. Or to the Roman Christians, whom Paul had never even met before he sent his letter out to them, he says, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, that somehow by God's will I may succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you. Is Paul an anomaly? Is this just a part of his being an apostle? He has to say these things to the churches. No, this is what should be in the heart of every Christian. Paul can love this strongly because he sees fellow believers first as family to whom he belongs, united in a mutual faith in Jesus. And let me just say, did Paul love the people who looked like him, acted like him? Was there just relational chemistry at this time in the church? No, Paul's ministry was to people who were nothing like him. They were different from him in every way. They were Gentiles. He was a Jew. They were pagans. They didn't know anything about his Judaism or the law of God or of Jesus. And did he have a ton of spare time to build these relationships, to build these churches? Not necessarily. Paul was bivocational. He had a job. He made tents in addition to his ministry responsibilities, which were immense. He poured out his life for the church. Why? because he cared not about making a name for himself or building something beautiful for himself, but about making a name for Christ. And that's what unifies the church most. We all live to make much of him, not us, to share him, not ourselves, with other people. You know, the unity we're seeing in the world is dark, it's, it's hopeless, it, it breeds it's tons of confusion, there's division, all over the place. So this is the time. This is the time, church, for us to live out our unity given us by Christ himself. Our unity is, 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 is how people see the one true God and be drawn to our Savior. 
Did you catch what God says about the people of Babel in verse 6? He says this, Behold, they are one people. They all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they'll do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. The God of the universe is acknowledging the immense power of a unified people. So imagine what we can do with our Christian unity in the church. Nothing, nothing will be impossible for us because we're one with God and with one another, striving for that upward call of God in Christ Jesus until every knee is bowed and every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. Christ has made us one. So let's show the world who he is by our unity with one another. Let's show together as brothers and sisters in Christ, our Savior, our brother. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have sent the Son to bring glory to your name, that people would know you truly, that their love for you would be genuine because your love for them is genuine. You sent Christ. It was your will that he be crushed on our behalf. What else could show a greater love? Lord, where there is any disunity, any unreconciled relationships with other believers, anything that needs mending, anything that needs restoration, Lord, by your Spirit, would you move in us to move closer towards one another in true fellowship, fellowship we already have with you because of the Savior's work on our behalf. Help us live it out. We recognize our weakness here. Forgive us, Lord, your church, forever misrepresenting your name. Forgive me, Lord, the sins of my heart, the cravings of my flesh, the ways I submit to the things of this world countless times. And yet you have saved your church. She is your bride, your beloved. She is yours, and you are hers. Lord, help us taste the sweetness of unity. How good and pleasing it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Thank you, Lord, that we can. Be glorified among us. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.